Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Luis Gallegos, the head of UNITAR and a fellow Harvard ALI fellow. Luis is an Ecuadorian diplomat with a half century's experience. Most recently, he was Ecuador's Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was the ambassador to the UN in New York, served as his country's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva three times, and was ambassador to the US from 2005 to 2011. After playing an instrumental role in the signing of the UN Convention on the Human Rights of People with Disabilities, which was signed in 2006, He's now working on getting the UN Convention on the Human Rights of Older People signed, and he's already got 66 countries on board. Luis, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm delighted you could join me. I met you last year at Harvard, where we were both part of the Advanced Leadership Initiative, and you spent the year working on the UN Convention on the Rights of Older People. Can you tell me a little bit what this is and why it's so necessary now. First of all, thank you very much. And uh, second, it's an always a pleasure to be with you. Follow your distinguished career. <laughs> Look who's talking. We met at Harvard at the Advanced Leadership Initiative, and I had a ball that year. I also am attached to the Harvard Law School Disability Project, which I have been working on as a senior advisor for some years. Why we need a convention to protect the rights of persons who are aging is one of the principal questions that we delve in in the international scenario, because as the world ages, we're now more older adults than children being born. We are one billion people who are aging. What do we call aging? Because we're one billion people over. We're all aging, I imagine. Yes, over 65. Okay. The projection, of course, is that we will be, by the year 2050, that's 27 years from now, 2 billion people. Besides the calculation of the immediate group of 1 billion, you normally calculate two persons as an impact group. Wife, father, mother, daughter, whomever, caretaker, medical assistant, community, whatever. That makes the impact group and the persons who are aging 3 billion. 3 billion today. Today. And by the year 2050, you have a projection of 2 billion, you have 6 billion. Yeah. That will mean a paradigm shift in the demography of the world that is changing as a tendency. And you have to add to that longevity. I think that because of many circumstances, we are living longer, we are living better, we are living more actively than those who are before us. And we have a new vision on what entails on our experiences, our capacities, and with technology, our our newfound abilities to work more intensively in other aspects. And the experience we have gathered is that of people who have had the capacity of being able to survive in a very competitive world, as we have all lived in, in a very challenging circumstance of the last 60 years, 65 years uh, before me, and now 76, have been a very intense change in the world. We've seen enormous changes in the world. Why the convention? Dignity. The dignity of people who are aging. That is not an objective of our societies. We are finding that the pandemic showed us, and unfortunately in a very crude and tragic way, showed that this group, the most affected group, where most people died, were from this group. 
the respirators were discriminated between this group of people who were aging and saying, don't give the respirator to this person, give it to a young person. I think that is abominable. The other issue is that societies tend to put capsules and silos on groups, and the tendency has been to put this group in the partiality of discrimination. But I also think that the pandemic revealed something that is very complicated to deal with, and that is that before the vaccinations, before the issue, when nobody knew how to deal with this, the groups of people, either institutionalized or in their homes, uh, were affected by incapacity by the state to attend them adequately, by their societies, by their families. Isolation became an enormous issue. As I travel the world, I find that the resilience of the older group is much more so. The use of technology is an ever-increasing challenge, but also a plus. I have to say that when I talk about these subjects, I normally try to explain it in my experience and explain why I'm involved in this issue. What you're describing is partly a celebratory story of longer, healthier lifespans, but there's a shadow side to this reality that you're trying to actually put a light on, that we should pay more attention to the downside risks of the consequences of these much longer lives everywhere. Well, I think the legislation in most countries of the world that have institutionalized structures put limitations on people artificially. They were put in there for calculation. I mean, you know, you're 65, you can't get a loan. Your car dealer suddenly suspends your car credit because you're not subject to loans. Your capacity of getting employment is limited. Your capacity of doing many other issues that you normally would do are limited. And I found this out because as I think about this thing, I wasn't aware of this, that your insurance would lapse because you got to 65 or that you had a decreased persistence of your insurance because at 80, you peaked the insurance capability. These types of things are obnoxious. Yeah, you must have had quite a time getting insurance for your year at Harvard. No, no. And you helped me in this because there were no insurance companies yeah. in the realm of what the list that they gave me at Harvard they would, would be willing to insure a 75-year-old. And on the other hand, there was a requisite by the not only the institution, Harvard, yeah. Not only Harvard, but the American government. In the issue, you needed health insurance. Uh, you can't get into the country if you don't have health insurance, and nobody will give you health insurance because of your age. That's a nice catch, 22. Yeah. And the other issue is the complexity of the problem. I came back from China this weekend, and the problem there is, is obvious because you're having an aging society. And I was marveled by a system that our friend Shelby from Ally took me to uh, one of his companies one of the companies he is promoting for adaptive technology to the house with all types of very advanced technology for a person to live autonomously in his own home, be able to contact immediate health care, be able to talk to a doctor immediately, not wait for three months, sensors in the bed, sensors in the bedroom, sensors in the bathroom, where you have this marvelous technology being able to assist those who are no longer in the pattern of the tribal aspect that when you age, you go to live with your daughter or your son and you age in town, which is something that modern society, you and I are people who have our sons in different continents. Uh, are unlikely to want to do. Yeah, I, uh... will not be with us. I was going to tell you an anecdote about my cataract operation. I got to 72, uh, 73, and I went to get my eye examination for my driver's license in New York. 
I was working in, as ambassador of Ecuador to the United Nations. And the, the doctor told me, you, well, this is the last certificate because by next year, your cataracts will have gone to the place where I won't be able to give you a certificate for your driving license. And so I said, but not, yeah, I, I really don't feel that. So your cataracts are going to get worse. My normal exams of eyes had told me you had cataracts. It'll happen in a time and so on. So I went to the, an ophthalmologist in New York and he said, yeah, we can operate. And I'd like to ask you a question. Would you like to see without glasses? And I said, can you do that? You know, I've been using glasses for 60 years. I'm 72. I began this when I was 12 years old. They took me to the doctor because I couldn't see. Can, can you do this? I said, yeah, sure. We can implant uh, multifocal lenses in your eyes and uh, you won't have to use glasses. And I said, sure, of course. And here I am. And no glasses. The older you get, the better you get, Luis. And I spent a good part of the first three to six months going to bed, taking off my glasses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Habits die hard. Yeah. I tell this story because it was my first encounter with technology, which I had been dealing with in the space of disability which I find there's a nexus because all these issues of accessibility and capabilities that have been designed by the major corporations and innovations and new technologies and new startups are suitable for aging people. And there is an enormous market for them. When we got to analyze, okay, how do you change a national legislation one by one? Yeah. We can't do that in the time of, of my lifespan. Yeah. Having been the chair of the working group that drafted the Convention on Disability. And just for our listeners, you you were part of the groundbreaking UN Convention on the Human Rights of People with Disabilities that was introduced in 2006. So this is actually a quite related next step that you're taking, since I imagine there's a lot of overlap between age and some degree of disability. You're either born with a disability or you acquire it during your life by accidents, by sickness, by war, like in Ukraine, or by many other students. So what you're saying is you can't change, you know, we can't wait to have national legislation adapted to the second billion older people country by country. So maybe you can help explain the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disability. What changed since you introduced that in 2006? And how does that fast track the kind of adaptations we need in countries around the world on Um, aging. I was asked to chair this working group on an issue of disability for persons with disabilities. And I originally evaluated that being against disability was politically incorrect. But I found that that was not a very appropriate... uh, (laughs) Even the word isn't very allowed these days. You had countries that were completely against this and big, major countries. So uh, it was a difficult uh, diplomatic negotiation. I'm not an expert on disability. I keep repeating myself on this thing. I'm a negotiator. I'm a diplomat. What I look is for consensus. So what we obtained with the Convention on Disability with the CRPD is that 1.3 billion people now are protected because 185 countries have signed and ratified the Convention on Disability. What does that entitle? What does that mean? That means that this country will respect the convention states as rights for persons with disabilities, will be monitored by a group of experts that sit in a committee in Geneva, and they have to report the advance in compliance with this convention. And they also do the simple issues of being able to adapt their cities 
every time I see a ramp for a wheelchair or the dots on the, the sidewalks, I feel proud of the effort that hundreds of people in me that were involved in this, that I had the privilege of meeting, have changed the aspects of appreciation and the conception and the perception of disability in the world. And now that we are fighting to get this issue on the agenda of the UN, we have been working there for a year and a half now. Others have been working before us, but at this point, we are 60 plus countries very actively engaged. We have gotten a civil society comprehension on this issue. We have a market that undoubtedly promotes the capabilities of companies to be involved in this issue. And we have moved this to the front pages of a worldwide discussion. What is the issue of aging, women aging, aging a city, healthy aging? We have the WHO in a decade of healthy aging, dealing with all these aspects. We have the ITU in the technology aspect. It's very impressive how this subject has been mainstreamed in just the last year that I've been looking at it. And you're an expert on this issue. So people like you are fundamental to the effort because a story in the Financial Times or in The Economist will do more to prompt this than a visit to 30 or 40 delegations in New York. But we are doing that. We're doing the work on the ground, the work in capitals, the capability. And at this moment, there is a recognition that we are in front of a very huge challenge in world society that will change the way the world views this aspect. As we have less children in the world, we have to look at viable solutions for autonomous living, for living with dignified way. And I have to say this because it comes out of my heart, dying with dignity. Oh, which yes. Is another well, which another is, one we share. Yep. If we can get the dynamics that we are looking for in the next 24 months, I, I had calculated 36 months when I was in, in Harvard that we would get to 100, 120 countries. I was very impressed that we had, this is an issue that we are getting near to the 80s now. And I'm very happy that I'm going to New York. I have a dozen meetings with countries on this issue while I'm in New York next week. But the aspect of being able, I was uh, with the UN office, regional office in Asia, talking about this aspect. And their experts told me, this is not an issue in Asia. They're not getting old. We were the only ones getting old. And after I explained to them, they said, no, no, this is a very big issue in Asia. Not they, only they have some of the lowest birth rates in the world. So. Yeah. And as the aging that we foresaw in Japan and in Korea, the aspects of aging in Europe, in the United States, but the global South is also aging. And this issue has to deal with capabilities of work, capabilities of sustainability, healthcare systems that have to be put in place. I was asking how many specialists in gerontology are there in the world? Well, there are very few. Yeah, not many. And the concept of what we just did in, in the University of Surrey, which was inaugurated a center for excellence on aging, is a very good beginning to complement other efforts around the world on the study and the need of data for decision-making. Now, as we move to this, my reflection is it's better to have an international convention that all the countries can come on board and have a guideline for those who do not have legislation to look into the possibilities of having a dignified, a realistic, pragmatic decision-making in public policy, world decision-making on this issue. 
So I'm just curious in the legislation that you are mapping out and in discussion about, and you're talking about death with dignity, what's wrapped up in there? Is it touching on things like assisted dying? Because that's a hot topic that's spreading quickly. We have been doing the beginning of the analysis of what the gaps in international law are that do not contemplate aging. For example, if you have a convention on women, is aging contemplated in the convention on the rights of women? Like gender pension gaps, for example. Yes. Are we talking about the implications of maltreatment and torture in relation to aging? Right. Is the human rights structure under the High Commissioner of Human Rights built to consider the issue of aging? What are the international legal gaps? And we've been working with that with the Harvard Disability Project and with others who are aiding us in putting this together as an argumentation. The last meeting of the Working Group on Aging of the United Nations that happened in the month of April, we approved the resolution, the countries of the United Nations approved the resolution, by which a working group has to define what these gaps are, the basis of an argumentation of saying, we need a new convention under the structure of legal necessity. I had conversations, and last year was a very positive one, because I remember very clearly when we met, I had just arrived after founding the Global Initiative on Aging Foundation. I suddenly found myself in the spring break. And so I said, you know, I'm in Boston. What do I do with myself? I'll go to New York, and I'll visit the Secretary General and explain to him the issues of aging. So off I went to New York. I got an appointment with Antonio Gutierrez, and I said, this is a daunting challenge. This is what the UN is really good at. It might not be good for many other things, but this is the aspect in which you say nearly 4 billion people that we have managed to have a rules-based instrument guide the process of disability and the impact group it has. If you have 1.3 billion people with disability, you have an impact group of 2.6. Almost 4 billion people are covered by an initiative of legislation that has changed the dynamics of the world toward the issue of, of disability. But When we're talking about aging and disability, changes your chip. Because normally you say, I'm sorry that the child was born with a disability. I'm very sorry that the person got a disability by accident or whatever. But when you sit down and say, I may have a disability. I might be the person who has a stroke. I might be the person who was involved in this. This is not about them alone. It's about me. Yep. And although it's a very self-expansionary, I think it's very valuable to get people thinking that universal design of homes with accessible wheelchair doors and accessible elevators to get into your apartment and autonomous living is something we all have to be. And today, I think we should just throw out that about 3% of housing in the U.S. is universal design ready. So really, you're helping nudge us all kind of to accept that the world is dramatically shifting and that the whole body of legislation basically has to transversally introduce aging as a subcontext to every single law we've got to make sure it's integrated. And when you talk about this, you also, I, I just came from Mongolia, had the opportunity of sitting down with the prime minister. The prime minister is a Harvard graduate, as we speak. That old Harvard network. And the issue of disability is linked. And you have a very strong intentionality of the world to deal with this problem when people become conscious of the need to have a legislation that will guide the process. Now, 
we are in front of a challenge that is so daunting that most politicians would like to kick it down the road. Because, you know... If, if, it's far enough away problem, from most of them. Yeah, yep. yeah. If you have a problem, in our, especially in our systems of democracy, where you can get bogged down because of the issue of pension funds, you have to look at the consequences. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so big a problem with funds and with healthcare system renovation and with universal design of housing and with this and that. Let's leave it to the next guys. And that's where we want to really put our foot down and say, no, no, it's now. We have to begin now. In order to get to 2050, many of us won't be here in 2050. The issue is getting to 2050 when you have the daunting problem with climate change, a problem with production, problems of supply chain, possible conflicts in geopolitics and all that. And you have people aging. Those that suffer more are those that are vulnerable. We had a team of people last year and this year, we're still working on this, called the Purple Vest, working in Ukraine, distracting people who are aging out of buildings in zones of conflict that we would never have thought would be zones of conflict, getting them to safe places, getting them outside of the country, providing them with food, providing them with shelters, with health care, that we have to look into this as an operation of constant worry. Because we have 60 conflicts around the world. We do. Ukrainian one is in the news, but we have 60 conflicts around the world. We need to be able to have legislations that protect these people and the state's responsibility to do this. So I'm just curious because there's a lot of massive challenge, huge issue. The Economist just this week published a very negative look at aging societies that are going to be far less innovative than ever before, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see an upside to aging societies? Any Anything that brings optimism to your heart as you look at these shifting demographic curves? Or should we really just be out there desperately trying to encourage young couples to have more children everywhere? Let me tell you an experience of mine in Spain. I worked in Spain for around six months and uh, someone who was retired could not get his money out of an ATM machine. Because of the technology, the ATM machine was not designed and the program was not designed to be helpful. Yep. When you get into that traction of not being able to get your money from your pension system or you're, you're in a problem. So he reacted very proactively. And there is a legal disposition in the Spanish legislation that if you get 800,000 signatures, the parliament has to deal with this problem. So he began on the quest to get 800,000. I was sitting in a dinner in Madrid one day with a group of middle-range professionals, women and men, lawyers and people who were linked to engineering and so on. And one of them said, I just signed the petition this afternoon. And I said, you signed the 800,000? Yeah, 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 I signed it because my father can't get the money out of this. And that creates a family problem and it creates a dislocation of possibilities. Beside the justification of he has to get his money because that's his right. This creates a social dilemma because he begins to call everyone else to help him get the money. And there's no human being behind the machine in a region abandoned by banks in the sense that they don't have people. Well, now they do. I believe that there is an upside to dignified living for all society. This is the sort of the point of the arrow into a, a new society that has more dignity. The basis of human rights respect and definition as the basis of their legislation. I find an enormous capability because of the numbers. We're not going to go away that easy. Yeah. If political decision makers do not adapt their policies to deal with this problem, it'll get bigger. What yeah. we're trying to do is say, look, we're trying to help you. 
we're trying to tell you that there's going to be a problem and it's easier to legislate and have standard rules-based laws that can deal with this problem and evolved into a society that is inclusive, that is diversified, that is a society that will permit these people to live with dignity. Yes. And I think it's a very good narrative for yeah. people because all of us are in this Nobody's going to avoid this. So you're suggesting really that um, there's this massive boulder coming towards us, this extraordinary visible. It's very clear in the data, completely unavoidable. And it would be much smarter if all of us would proactively become longevity ready rather than trying to ignore the whole thing and then have a time bomb of generational strife. So... More power to you, Luisha. I think impressive and impressive the years of globetrotting that I am watching you do on our WhatsApp channel. And I just want to conclude a little bit on a slightly more personal note. You were the oldest participant in our ALI class last year. We were all in great admiration of you. You've spent a half century as a globe hopping diplomat from Ecuador. You are, I think, the son and grandson of diplomats. You, you have this in your bloods, and nobody's better placed than you. Why did you decide to go back to school at 75, and what did you get out of it? And would you recommend that we should all be doing this as we move into our fourth quarters? This is a question that I have had in my mind. It comes constantly back to <laughs> I went to Harvard because of my friends of the Harvard Disability Project suggested that there was this program in Harvard and it would be very interesting if you came and joined us and on this issue. And I found it fascinating because here I found a group of people like you who had divided life in quarters, who had written about this, who were knowledgeable of the programs in MIT and in Berkeley and, and the composition, and that foresaw the leadership role of individuals in their third and fourth quarter. There might be singularities that individuals as examples of people who are aging in their 80s or 90s and still have a very prominent decision-making process and participate in decision-making process in the world. I had a ball. <laughs> the intellectual stimulus of a place like Harvard, every day you have 12 events or 20 events or whatever, you're caught in this situation of which should I go to? <laughs> And I, constant I FOMO of not being in all of them. Yeah. Being able to talk to people who are intellectually stimulating, brilliant individuals who have written books on everything. And uh, from racism uh, to algorithms and artificial intelligence, I came back with an enormous amount of books looking for new groups to work with, having the issue of a change in mentality that we need to have a stimulus. Now, those professors in Harvard are also in the same situation that we are. Many of them are our age. Many of them are working every day to better the world. So meeting people like you and the cohort we were in was an enormous, an enormous stimulus because you found people from around the world gearing up to doing socially relevant projects for the benefit of others. I found that fantastic. When you sit down and say, you know, here are a group of people that are willing to dedicate the rest of their lives to another human being. To other human beings is the metaphor of what life should be. And what longer what? lives might be about. You think we might save the human race with our older well, older quarters giving back? And then again, you know, it was a very reflective period because I sat down with Fabiola, with my wife, and, 
and had the opportunity of recapacitating, rethinking the issue. And when you're in a situation because of destiny, or I am a very big believer in God, of God's will, that gave me the opportunity of being able to participate in this huge adventure of disability legally binding convention, it created for me an opportunity to understand better the essence of life. Because when you have a person with a disability, you admire him for the simple capacity of overcoming the most common of things that you do daily and that you don't recognize as a challenge. That is an example for all of us. So we have an aging society that has to be more vibrant, that has the capacity of contributing more. But there are examples like that that make me think in positive that this is doable. And that is what I would like to dedicate my life to. Luis, I think you are the perfect role model for what we all need to become as we move into our fourth quarters. I wish everybody listening hear and see your enthusiasm, but I'm sure that they understand it. It's very communicable and you've been such an inspiration to me. So thank you for everything you do. I watch you jet about the world nonstop on this convention for the rights of older people with enormous admiration and gratitude. So thank you for being there. Thank you for leading the way. And we are all of us running behind you trying to keep up. So Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you very much for those kind words. Keep well always. And thank you very much for this opportunity. It was a distinction that I consider a very big honor. You're flattering me, but that's okay. I'll take it. (laughs) 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 To our next conversation. Thank you, Luis. Have a fantastic day. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.